Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for this Tuesday, October the 6th. Coming up, we'll talk about Led Zeppelin winning a legal battle over Stairway to Heaven, President Trump's return to the White House, and the latest COVID-19 headlines, such as the system being backlogged in Ontario when it comes to testing, and also that they're sending pharmacy swabs for analysis all the way to California. That's all coming up right now on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. Okay, listen up, music fans. That lawsuit involving Stairway to Heaven has been decided. Do you remember a while back when the band Spirit, they said that their guitar solo from this song, a Taurus, have a listen. They said that it sounded a little too much like this one from Jimmy Page. I don't know, one just sounds like it was recorded in high definition as compared to the other. They seem rather similar to me, but a court has rendered a verdict. And joining us now with the details is music expert Eric Elper here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Eric, how are you? I am good, man. How are you? Doing well. Uh, what did this court decide? Well, the final possible legal challenge to the ownership of Stairway to Heaven has been defeated, and it turns out that Led Zeppelin did not copy the song from Spirit, and they get to keep the entire $3.4 million that has been made in the last five years of that song alone. So it looks like that this is the final nail um, to the to the court, and uh uh, you know, musicians, I think, around the world are going to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief for this one because it means that, you know, uh, the feel of the song, the 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 notes between the notes per se are important. And, uh, you know, whenever you know, you're always going to have people that are angry and, and excited on both sides whenever a court battle happens, music or not. But I, I think with this one, though, it was so con- hotly contested that the, the music industry is kind of just breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief for this one. Yeah, do we know how this was ultimately decided? Because we just played the clips back-to-back. I, along with many others, uh, I don't know, there's a striking similarity there, Eric. <laughs> Yeah, you know what what they did this time around um, at the supreme at the highest level of the court, as opposed to the other court cases that they had to bow this out specifically, was that they found evidence from musicologists more convincing this time around. Those music experts testified that those descending musical pattern that we heard when you played both of them aren't just weren't invented by the band Spirit. In fact, they found it also in the song Chim Chimari in from Mary Poppins back in 1964. So that means that if it's if that's pretty similar, then Spirit could have actually been sued by Walt Disney for copying their version. And then you keep going back and back and back because there's only so many notes that can be created and produced. Um, you're going to find overlapping and when it comes to musical um, musical borrowing, musical stealing, musical everything. You have to be able to to kind of twist and turn the notes to make them into your own, and that's exactly what the court said that Jimmy Page and Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin did. 
So this kind of comes down to the age-old argument, were you influenced by something or did you rip a band off? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm trying to remember the backstory here, and wasn't Spirit opening for Zeppelin uh, ahead of the release of uh, Led Zeppelin uh, 4 and that uh, maybe they heard this song, uh, Taurus, playing where they were back in their dressing room and it just kind of seeped maybe into Paige's consciousness, that sort of thing? That's exactly what happened. And in fact, the band um, Spirit said that maybe unconsciously uh, Jimmy Page, uh, you know, stole the song, maybe didn't do it with malice, maybe didn't do it with full on intent. Um, But those notes were there in his mind, or at least through his ears. And Jimmy Page has said that out of the 4,000 vinyl records that he owned, only five of them were by the band Spirit, um, but he said that he first heard Taurus on the internet back in 2014 when the lawsuit happened. So, you know, the, the court kind of believed this. But, you know, it's interesting because going back to what you were saying about about the notes and, and the, that subconsciousness, you, a couple of years ago, you and I talked about that other big lawsuit in the music industry where Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke were sued successfully by Marvin Gaye's estate right. because they felt that Blurred Lines sounded too similar in the feel and the vibe of the song of Got to Get It uh, Got to Get It On. And so that was interesting because even though that the notes weren't similar, the cowbell was similar, the way that the sound of the drums were similar evoking those memories of the original Marvin Gaye song. So it wasn't even the copying of the notes, but Marvin Gaye's estate successfully sued that, you know, the, that Motown R&B funk feel of 1972 could be copyright. And that kind of scared a lot of musicians as well. Yeah, last I checked, Led Zeppelin, they've made a, f- made a few bucks in their day. So is it surprising that they just didn't settle this and make this all uh, go away? Or was there uh, a lot more than just money riding on this, do you think? You mentioned a second ago the music industry kind of breathing a sigh of relief. Led Zeppelin has gotten spanked in the past and damaged their reputation forevermore when they didn't credit old blues artists like Willie Dixon on their first couple of albums when they were doing cover versions of their songs, or at least using verses and chorus of copyright material um, and didn't give credit. And it's knocked them to this day. And I know that they still feel bad about it, considering the fact that they they bow to these blues artists. They just didn't realize maybe that that those songs weren't in the public domain or for whatever reason, the last thing Led Zeppelin wanted to do and have a stain on their career, that their most beloved song, they actually ripped it off from somebody else. Yeah. Do you think that this ends these uh, sorts of uh, lawsuits? I mean, this comes up time and time again, right? You hear a new song and you went, wait a minute, that really reminds me of this song from this era or, or this period. Do you think that this is precedent setting this decision and that we're going to see less of this perhaps, Eric? No, it, we're actually going to be seeing more of it, not necessarily because of this, but because everybody has access to YouTube and Spotify and 55 million songs, we never had access to that. If you wanted to hear a song 20 years ago, you actually had to find it and go out and buy it. And now that with every single hit song on the Billboard Hot 100, there's probably a lawsuit happening quietly behind the scenes that we just don't know about, because it could be a song from 1964 that might have sold only three copies, but somehow managed to find its way on YouTube, and those 
those creators or that estate is now going after Taylor Swift or whoever happens to be, you know, the biggest selling artist at the time. You know, there's no thing that when there's a hit, there's a writ. And certainly we're going to see definitely more of this as the accessibility to music um, is at our fingertips because you could actually claim, you know, well, when you were surfing around YouTube that day, you probably heard this song and it's up for the the defender of that song to prove that they didn't. And that's really hard to prove. So sometimes those artists are just like, look, here's a hundred thousand dollars. Just go away. Well, speaking of YouTube, if you're a Zep fan and you want to celebrate their court victory regarding stairway to heaven, might I suggest you watch Hart's rendition of it at the uh, Kennedy center awards. I mean, it is just so knockout good. And, and Nancy Wilson and the three surviving members, of course, up there in the uh, balcony, Robert plant uh, reduced to tears. It's just an amazing performance. Yeah, it's great. You know, if you go down the rabbit hole and then if you take Jeff's advice and you watch that and you keep going three hours later, you're watching how a giraffe eats a head of lettuce. <laughs> Equally entertaining, just Equally in a different way. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Eric, good stuff. Thanks as always. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Jeff. We'll talk soon. There goes Eric Alper, our music expert. The world, of course, still buzzing over President Trump's departure from the Walter Reed Medical Center yesterday. Arriving back at the White House, he climbed the stairs of the South Lawn and then took off his mask. He saluted Marine One and then re-entered the White House. Now, Amanda Klutz, I want to play this clip for you. She is the uh, widow of Broadway actor Nick Cadero. He is the native of Hamilton, Ontario, who sadly died of COVID earlier this summer. Here is her, Amanda Klutz, very emotional reaction to uh, Trump and his actions from yesterday and also his tweet that we should not fear COVID. Have a listen to this. No one's letting it. Nick didn't let it. It wasn't a choice. And it dominated his life. It dominated my life. It dominated our family's lives um, for 95 days. And be- and because he didn't make it, it will ever affect my life. Even if he would have survived, it would have forever affected and changed our lives. It's beyond hurtful. And And have some empathy. Why are you bragging? Have empathy to the... Americans, that you are our leader. Have some empathy to the people who are suffering and grieving. A very emotional Amanda Klutz, again, the widow of Broadway actor Nick Cadero on Instagram that posted earlier today. Let's welcome in our medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchitz. He joins us for more here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here as always. Okay, Brett, we've got limited medical information, but if you're somebody in your mid-70s, you're male, I mean, is it truly possible to recover from COVID and feel the best you have in 20 years in just three days? It's highly unlikely. Now, this is an illness that has an incredibly variable uh, course. We see different outcomes in, in almost every single patient, and it is highly unpredictable what the course of the disease will be for any patient that we are treating. That being said, uh, there are a a few risk factors that we're seeing in this case uh, that you've already mentioned. Number one, age. uh, Number two, uh, I'm not sure you mentioned it, but the fact that he is overweight is certainly uh, one of the greatest risk factors for a poor outcome. But those two combined almost inevitably have been leading to poorer outcomes for COVID. And when we look at COVID-19, when we look at the progression of this particular illness, one thing that's been very clear is that 
most people who have been infected with this do not suffer their worst symptoms or their worst outcomes in the first few days of infection. Most of the time, the, the, day, the days into this infection where we see the worst consequences developing are typically days five to 10. So when somebody is three or four days into infection, like what we're looking at right now, this is just the beginning of the course. And we've certainly seen, I've seen this in my clinical practice and many of my colleagues have seen this in their clinical practices, Patients who a day or two into infection seem to be getting better, seem to be responding to initial treatment. We send them home only to have them bounce back to hospital two or three days later and then into the ICU a few days after that and sometimes fatally, uh, you know, passing away a few days after that. And, you know, there's tons of publicized cases of this happening. So uh, for anybody to be saying that, you know, they're 100% fully over this illness at two to three days is highly unlikely. And certainly, you know, the probability that somebody would feel better than they felt in 20 years, I would say, is an impossibility. There's nothing about this illness that makes you better than you were at your baseline. Yeah. Is it the steroids and the experimental cocktail of drugs that President Trump has been given? Is that what's artificially maybe reducing fever and making masking the symptoms, making making him feel better, sorry, than maybe he truly or actually is? Well, yeah, I mean, the big question here is, does he actually feel better? Uh, You know, I've treated many, many patients in the course of my career with steroids and and very, you know, yes, they do impair your judgment somewhat. They do give you uh, sometimes a feeling of false euphoria, a feeling of uh, of feeling better than you are. But for, for the most part, even with that, many of the patients that I've treated with steroids still recognize that they don't feel better than their baseline. And so uh, I think there's two questions here. One is, you know, is he actually being honest in terms of how he's feeling? Um, and if anybody were to look at that video of him on the balcony from last night, uh, this is clearly not somebody who's asymptomatic. His breathing was quite labored. There were a number of signs that a medical professional would look at and say, this is a sign of somebody who is not breathing comfortably. Uh, so, you know, looking at him, it's clear that he really isn't feeling all that great. Uh, and secondarily, you know, beyond that, uh, how much is his perception of how he's feeling affected by the drugs that he's on? And I think it's sort of a combination of the drugs making him, you know, feel a little bit better than he would and then him not being entirely honest about just how bad he is feeling. Yeah, give us your take as a medical professional, as a doctor. Uh, what is your take on Trump not only removing his mask and then walking back into the White House, but also tweeting his messages again, don't fear COVID? It's incredibly irresponsible. It's irresponsible on multiple levels. So first of all, the, the actions that we saw, which is the, the mask coming off and then walking into an indoor space where, from what we understand, there were other staff people who work in the White House present in that room. This is an incredibly infectious disease. And being in an indoor space with somebody who is infected with COVID and who's symptomatic with COVID, who is not wearing a mask, puts everybody in that room at an incredible risk of infection. And, and even in a hospital where we're treating patients Uh, that we know have COVID, we would never allow them to at any point in time in the hospital have their mask off. And we certainly would never allow them to be in a room with others who were not fully protected with full PPE. So incredibly irresponsible, uh, incredibly risky to those around him. Uh, This idea that, um, you know, he's putting forth that we should not be afraid of COVID, that we should not let it be something that dictates the way that we live. Let's be very clear. This is one of the leading killers, if not the leading killer of people in the Western world and in particular in the United States in the last six months. And people should be rightly afraid of this. This is something that if you're not afraid of it and you don't take the right precautions, your chance of getting it is very, very much higher. And it is still a very fatal illness. We're still seeing in the United States about a thousand people dying of this every single day. So it is profoundly irresponsible to be telling people not to be wary of this and not to be taking it seriously. 
Joined by our medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchetz. Uh, Dr. Belchetz, uh, closer to home, uh, today is day one of appointment COVID testing. And do you believe or do you think that this is going to be effective in reducing wait times? I think it's unlikely to be effective at reducing wait times. You know, the reason why wait times are very, very high for COVID tests is that the number of people that are looking for tests right now is far higher than the number of test slots that are available. And whether or not those tests are available by appointment or by walk-in, that does not change that reality. So what we're going to see, I think, unfortunately, as a result of switching tests from walk-in to by appointment, is there are going to be a large number of people who are unable to get an appointment who will just not get tested. And I think that that is uh, not the ideal outcome because certainly what we don't want is to be missing cases because we've made it too hard for people to get tested. So I think uh, the right solution rather than changing testing from from walk-in to appointment only is to increase capacity. I think if we had increased capacity in conjunction with, with changing how we do the testing, I think we could probably have a little bit better impact. But this switch all on its own, I think what we're seeing now, and I've heard this from many patients who have tried to get scheduled appointments for testing, that those appointment slots are pretty much full by mid-morning every single day. We're seeing a lot of people who are now not able to get tests, which for infection control in the, in a, in the middle of a pandemic is a very poor and undesirable outcome. And you just touched on this. Isn't the fear that uh, people who are indeed COVID positive, that they're out there shedding the virus and they're waiting days or more to get a test? Absolutely. That, that is the biggest worry, that there are many people who are suspicious that they have COVID, aren't certain that they have COVID, want to get a test to figure out if they need to be isolating themselves. Uh, they're not sick enough that they're actually going to be you know, going in and forcing a, a test to happen no matter, no matter how it happens. Uh, but they're, they're, they're concerned enough. And the problem with that is that all of these people who are shedding virus, who are well enough to potentially go to work, to, to go to a store, to be in settings with family where they might spread it to others, these are the people that aren't going to be getting tests because they're going to say, you know, I'm not sick enough to go to the hospital. I'm not sick enough to wait days for an appointment, so I'm just going to forget it. And this is really something that I think runs a very significant risk of contributing to runaway case numbers, which is something that we're already starting to see. We were airing uh, Premier Ford's uh, press conference last hour here on Global News Radio. He was asked by one reporter who uh, went on to some of the uh, hospital websites and said that it's almost impossible, as you just said, to get a booking for an appointment uh, right away. And his answer was, if you aren't showing symptoms, don't go for a test. But does that make good medical sense, do you think? Uh, Again, when we talk about people who are worried that they could be COVID uh, positive and are shedding the virus without knowing. And also, what about those that get a contact tracing uh, alert or somebody who knows that they've had a possible exposure, but again, aren't showing symptoms? Shouldn't we want them to be tested? Yeah, I think there are certain categories of people that should be getting tested and certain categories that aren't. And certainly who should be getting tested very much depends on how much virus is out out in the community. And so when we were at 60 tests, uh, 60 cases per day in the community, the odds are that any person out there who is walking around uh, and has a little bit of a sniffle, the odds are that it's COVID or the odds are that anybody who has no symptoms has COVID are, are very, very low. So so your outcome of actually you know, using test resources on those kinds of people is very much wasted. It, you're, you're not going to see very much in the way of meaningful results or very much in the way of infection control. The reality is now that you know we have you know over 500 cases every single day and, and over 700 cases someday, and, and most experts believe that that is a vast underestimation of how much is actually circulated in the community, given that the positivity rate of the test that we're doing is upwards of 10% in some neighborhoods in the province. Uh, what it means is that almost 
any group of people that you're going to randomly select who want to go in for testing, you are going to pick up some cases, which means that we have to have a much lower bar for who should be going for testing than if there were fewer cases in the community. Because, again, the only way that we're going to get this under control is to identify all of those cases and get those people out of circulation. So uh, I think people who are absolutely asymptomatic and have had no contact with anybody who is sick, probably less important. But I think if you've gotten a contact tracing alert that anybody uh, you've been near tested positive or if you know that you are exposed, absolutely those people should be prioritized and should be able to have access to testing. And if we're not able to test those people, then you know we're going to have a very long road ahead of us in terms of getting this under control. For sure. Uh, just finally, uh, Doctor, I want to ask you, and we're going to delve into this uh, a little more thoroughly in our next uh, break, but there is a report that pharmacy testing in Ontario, which has started up in the last uh, week or so, is now being shipped out to California to be uh, processed. I mean, is that the most efficient system? I mean, there's one thing, uh, it's one thing, sorry, to get tested, but it's another thing to, to get the results, which, of course, is what uh, people so desperately want. It's a good question. I guess the bigger question to ask is why those tests are being shipped out. Are they being shipped out uh, purely just as a matter of convenience, or are they being shipped out because we do not have the testing capacity here in Ontario? And, you know, I would say at this point in the pandemic where it seems like testing capacity is a very precious resource, uh, if if we are shipping tests out because we just cannot actually process those tests here, and if there is capacity elsewhere in the world and we can actually get those tests there and get answers back in, in a relatively efficient amount of time, then that probably is a good thing. I think anything that can expand our testing capacity in the short run is probably a good thing. And, you know, the reality is it doesn't really matter whether your COVID test was processed here in Ontario or in California or anywhere else in the world. What's most important is how quickly are you able to get a test and how quickly are you able to get results. And I think whatever achieves quick results in those areas is probably a good policy decision at this point. Well, we certainly need some uh, assistance, some help in that area. As you well know, the backlog is... uh pretty big. It's fairly uh, tremendous and uh, growing in the province right now. Uh, doctor, thanks as always. Really appreciate the time and the perspective. My pleasure. Have a great day. You as well. Dr. Brett Belchett's our medical expert, and as I mentioned, we're going to talk a little more about pharmacy testing. Is it doing what it should? Is it effective? And why are all of these uh, tests being shipped out to uh, California? Okay, there is a report out today, as we've been discussing, that pharmacy testing here in the province is actually being sent to California for processing. And that's led to speculation over whether or not this is the most efficient system, and is it helping when it comes to the province's testing backlog. Christine Nielsen is the CEO of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science and joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Christine, good afternoon. Hi there. Pleasure having you uh, with us. Uh, First of all, can you kind of break down or explain the process for us? I mean, what happens after I do my COVID test and I leave my local pharmacy? Where does it go next? That's a great question. So one of the challenges is it's called a testing site. And it's not a testing site. It's a collection site, right? So they are collecting your specimen. And then one of the most important things that happens in, in lab testing is we have to make sure that your specimen's traceable. You would always assume that that's happening. So it's got to have your name. We've got to know how to get back to you. So it's got to have your health card number on there. So we want to make sure that that's part of the processing that takes place before the specimen's collected so that that pharmacy knows where all of their specimens are. And presumably somebody comes to collect it or they ship them out and they're being received by a place called in common labs which is in north york which then prepare a batch of specimens and send them currently because ontario's at capacity to the united states for testing and it's currently being done in california okay and that leads to the question is this the most efficient and cost effective way of uh, dealing with these uh, tests 
So efficient possibly right now because the, the backlog on the weekend was at about 70,000 tests, right? So you've got people literally waiting in line um, f- to find out what's happening to their specimen. Um, I've been COVID tested myself and about a month ago, you know, we're looking at two to 10 days. That is a huge variation for a patient waiting to have their, their information come back. Two days ago, the same website said four days and it's now currently under maintenance and you have to contact whoever collected your specimen. So I don't know what the turnaround times are looking like right now. Um, is it efficient? Well, the, a private lab runs 24 hours a day, So, but California is not around the corner. So is it better for a specimen to wait in line in Ontario for three or four days, or is it better for it to get on a plane and go to California and have a result, say, in 10 hours? They're probably both as efficient. I know they're trying to get capacity in Ontario. Uh, the the premier said he doesn't want specimens leaving Canada. You know, the goal is to ramp up in Ontario to be hitting their goal numbers of like 35,000 tests a day. Is it cost effective? That I don't know. So, you know, there's, there's costs involved with who, who collects the specimen. They're paid to collect, and that happens whether you go to a testing site or to a pharmacy. And then in, in Canada, we know how much it costs to do these tests by PCR, polymerase chain reaction, which is our gold standard. Um, we know how much that's being paid. I don't know what the, the third party, Quest Diagnostics, or In Common Labs is able to bill. All right, but as you uh, mentioned and alluded to, uh, I think the more pressing concern here is getting test results to people as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And obviously it's great that there's more centers where they can do that test collection, uh, collection as you called it, yes. at pharmacies. But uh, obviously not great that you can't get the results or get them in a timely fashion. So, I mean, is the ultimate answer here, is this just a case that we don't have enough staff? Do we need uh, to do hiring, training? Do we need more technicians? So before, before COVID, so I'll take you back to like 100 years ago, January. <laughs> January, at the start of the year, you know, we were looking at our labor pool in Canada, and we know that it's going to decrease by the day because uh, schools were downsized in the mid-'90s, and provincial governments um, did not invest in some cases into making sure we had enough labor for the next decade. So we were in trouble in January. <laughs> so add to that, though, what happens during COVID is a lot of the routine testing changes, so we redeploy our staff. So if you worked in chemistry before, you're going to be retrained and go over and help out a micro. So we were coping, but not when those numbers were hitting 30,000 a day. So there is a shortage of medical lab technologists across Canada right now, and it takes three to four years to train a medical technologist. So CSMLS, my, my organization, we've been talking to governments, including the federal government and each provincial government, about the shortages that were coming long before we saw a pandemic on the horizon. So there is a challenge because it takes three years to train a medical technologist. Um, and it's very hard right now because every student needs a hand on, hands-on experience where you actually go into the, into the hospital and practice under supervision. The hospital is a place that you know, lots of people can't get into right now because we're trying to limit contact in, in the hospital. So schools, um, there's five of them in Ontario, are having to be really innovative about how to train the next generation of worker. And there's been a lot of uh, great things coming forward, but there is not enough in the pipeline before the pandemic. Right. So this just obviously is not a problem where we can snap our fingers and the solution is there. And is this what I guess you're detailing is another example of uh, governments maybe being warned of something even years ago, but uh, not really listening, more worried about budgets, bottom lines and thinking, well, yeah, the, a pandemic could possibly happen, but, but I doubt it. 
Exactly, Jeff. And there were some lessons that we learned during SARS that um, we seem to have forgotten about. Um, and so there will be great lessons learned as we come out of COVID. You know, provinces are handling this differently. The Atlantic bubble is handling things differently than Ontario and BC. So I hope that as, as a society, we, we heed the, the things that we, we learn because another pandemic will come, right? Organisms and viruses mutate. I hope that this one is short-lived, but the suggestion is that it's not going to be. And we're going to learn amazing things as society. Hand washing, you know, how to respect distance between people. You know, what's the safest way to get on an airplane now? You know, we're learning a lot, but it's hard because we're learning while we're on fire. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask you, uh, what role does rapid testing play here, particularly when it comes to people getting test results almost instantaneously and easing Ontario's uh, backlog? Is that going to play a major role? Will that be a major help, do you think? So I will tell you from from February, March, early days of COVID, we've been looking for the rapid test. That is, it's like the easiest one I can explain is a pregnancy test. A little bit of urine goes onto a stick and we find out we're pregnant. That took years for development, but... That is the best, the best thing that we can offer. Point of care, though, has to be sens- what we call sensitive and specific. It has to find a low viral load, and it's not currently doing a great job at that. So it's not as reliable as the gold standard, which is polymerase chain reaction. That's the one where we're extracting DNA. It takes four hours. You know, a little tiny device that you can hold, uh, like, in your hand is not going to have the same accuracy as, you know, a half-a-million-dollar analyzer. It can't. But will it help us? Definitely. And they've been looking for those devices and and refining the science behind it and testing it to see if it can recover smaller volumes of virus. So nobody's given up on point of care. You know, there's some new devices that have been approved for validation in Canada. We've been through this once before, though, with the Spartan Cube that was pulled from the market. So there's great promise here, you know, that it's easier to do. It's accessible. We We know where we can get it from. What we worry about from the public health perspective is, can we trace it back to you? Jeff, do we know that this is your specimen? And now, how, if you come up positive, how do we notify you and how do we notify other people that you may have had contact with? Mm-hmm. That will be important. Good questions. Uh, do we have any idea when the backlog could be cleared? I mean, we've heard numbers now approaching 100,000 uh, tests that are there uh, waiting. And can we expect to maybe, do you think, a, a few days where the COVID numbers are really going to spike because we are clearing this backlog? Well, what, what I think you've also seen, too, is a change in the criteria about who should have access to testing. So you can't just show up at a testing center now like you did a month ago. And now we're working through criteria about who gets access. And part of the challenge is you've got private industry bumping into it now, too. I know people who work in, like, private surgical clinics that are saying, you can't come in for testing or you can't come in for your procedure until we've had two COVID-negative tests. Well, Six months ago, that wasn't the case, right? You just went for surgery. So now there's additional health measures being put in place, sometimes by employers as well. School boards are all making different decisions about, you know, when does a child need to have a COVID test or when do they just need to stay home? Are they staying home for four days or 14 days? So that will be changing the criteria about who has access to the testing will definitely eliminate the number of people standing in line. Um, But you have to do that cautiously and based on evidence. Sure. And is there a danger? We were just talking about this a a moment ago uh, here on the show that uh, as we kind of narrow that window of who's eligible uh, for a test, is there a fear that uh, perhaps uh, people aren't getting tested that need to be and are positive and are walking around shedding the virus? That that is perfect language. That's exactly what it is. So that is the challenge. Um, You know, and we're also asking people to self-assess themselves. This is what doctors used to do, right? I used to go see the doctor. They would ask me the questions. I wasn't looking at a a checklist online or a piece of paper my child's teacher sent home. 
So there is the positivity rate right now for an average population is about 1.8%. So we test 200 people and two people come up positive. There's pockets in Toronto, I think you've heard, they're testing at 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in essentially an accelerated outbreak there. Um, so are th- there's always people who could have COVID-19 that we don't, that don't know. And that's the hard thing because we make sure, we want to make sure that the patient information is passed on to them about you may come up negative, but you have five symptoms. You need to stay in isolation for 14 days. And this is what this means. This means minimal contact with family. You don't leave your house. You need your own bathroom. That level of information I don't think is getting to very many people. Christine Nielsen. Uh, Christine, really appreciate the uh, conversation. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. And hopefully we can talk down the road as the uh, situation warrants. Thank you so much. Christine Nielsen is the CEO of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. And that's the podcast. Thanks, as always, for downloading and listening. A reminder, you can listen live weekday afternoons from 1 to 3 at 640toronto.com. Find us on Spotify. Search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcast.